Where do companies go for trusted remote engineers? They go to Turing.com, where talent is vetted through over five hours of technical tests and interviews. Spend less time hiring and more time building. Choose Turing today. Enjoy a no-cost, two-week trial at Turing.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, joined, as I often am, by my wonderful collaborator, Cassidy Williams. Cassie, how are you doing today? Hello. I'm excited to be here today. Yeah, we have a great guest today, uh, Matt Hicks, who is the CEO over at Red Hat. We're excited to have him on and to chat about his journey from developer to executive. So Matt, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So the first thing we always ask folks to do, to the degree that you're comfortable, is uh, date yourself a little. How did you first uh, touch a line of code? What got you started in this world, hooked on software or working with technology? Code is a pretty, probably a wide one for this. The first uh, attempted code was on an IBM 8086 when I was, I think, six years old on it um, with no understanding of computing, trying to make the computer do something and and failing, but just being fascinated with with that interaction. And um, since then, you know, after that age, it was starting to take whatever programming classes I could in school and just absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, I did computer engineering in school, but was constantly drawn to software. It was in the, uh, the dot-com craze and full at the time. But, uh, but yeah, have just uh, loved every aspect of that from learning it to uh, finding open source and really uh, getting, getting the pull from, from that as well. Very cool. That's awesome. When would you say you got into open source? Because it, relative to technology things, it's like kind of new, but not really. It kind of started as more of like a manifesto before it became a more mainstream thing. For me, it was with Linux itself. And so this was mm-hmm. in the, you're dating me saying it's fairly new. I'm like, well, this was in the <laughs> mid nineties for it. But, but really, you're right. There wasn't a tremendous gravity around things outside of Linux. It was a very practical, I can compile this and make it work on my machine. I actually have uh, one of Robert Love's Linux kernel development books behind me where it was this combination of being able to see the code and learn from the code Mm. with just enough explanation that was available around it to really make Mm. you appreciate it. And I fell in I fell in love with that. And that was, you're right, that was years and years before GitHub and and Stack Overflow and access to it. But I think all of that right. helped amplify what I found so you know, fascinating with open source and seeing how, how that could work in the early days uh, of it. Right. Yeah, you make a good point. What did you do? You found listservs, you went on bulletin boards, you bought books. How, how did you, you know, when you wanted to learn something new, from open source and Linux to something at work, you know, how did you figure out that stuff since that we didn't have the internet we have today with everything at your fingertips? It, it really was mailing list listservs. And I bought more technology books and like actual <laughs> physical books, no Kindle, um, get them, stack them up at home all the way through college, the uh, the Borders, Barnes and Nobles of, of that time. Um, that really was 
it it kills me today because it was probably a bit of an inefficient way to learn. Mm. But to your point, that is really what was accessible. And that actually is what what I loved about open source. You could learn from the code itself of uh, Mm. that you just didn't. I probably didn't have access to that style of programming until I was uh, at university for that. And so that that was just early exposure to things that I just uh, you didn't have the same resources to be able to find in a book. And so. Uh, but yeah, that was a different style of learning, I think, than uh, than what you might might do today. I feel like anybody who learned more than 15 years ago had to do some level of that where it, for myself, even it was viewing the source code of websites and be like, so that's what this tag does in yeah. HTML mm-hmm. and then yeah. messing with it a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of book reports got written thanks to Microsoft and Carta. There was no plagiarism checker back then. So, <laughs> Matt, tell us a little bit about some of your your first jobs before you moved into the executive stuff. And then we'll talk about that transition. You mentioned the dot-com boom. What was your yeah entree into working in this world? And what are some of your best memories of that time? When I was in school, before I'd graduated, uh, I loved computer engineering, but it was much more hardware-based. And, and at that point, I was pretty sure I did not yeah, the goal of that was sort of end up in a bunny suit doing chip fabrication. And I didn't love that aspect, or I didn't have the same passion as I did for software. So I actually started mm-hmm. uh, consulting for various companies um, when I was in school. And I I remember the, you know, it's, had to buy my own laptop to be able to reproduce environments. These were in the early, early days of Java and servlets and how you make environments work for training teams. Um, mm. And I loved it. I mean, it it was from like the, the early make e-commerce work for alumni organizations, or um, I worked in a startup at the time to help them go through that. Uh, but it was a very, what I loved about it, it was a very fundamental understanding of what makes the web work today. And mm. I I appreciate to this day getting to live through that period and learn by uh, mistakes and trial and error of how you actually operate in that type of environment. Whereas I think today we take a lot of that for granted. We just utilize mm. it. Um, during that time period, you got to participate a bit in the um, in the building of it. So consulting was my first foray before I graduated. That led to actually consulting was my first job that I took when I graduated. Very similar style. It was uh, the economy was a little rougher then because that was after the crash <laughs> of the downtown, uh, boom. But um, but same approach. Get in, understand what companies are doing with software, try to help move them along on that journey. And I I've never looked back uh, from that. Really, I really enjoyed it. And so, what was the transition like when you decided to go from developer to manager? to executive. It was interesting for me. And that started actually when I was in IT. I actually, I started mm-hmm. in Red Hat in the IT group because I'd done IT consulting quite a bit. Um, and moving from engineer to manager, one of the first lessons I usually tell people is I realized that you weren't going to be a great manager by being the best coder on that mm. because that that was my background. That was my domain. You sort of want to be on the team and be credible with that. And yet 
That right. doesn't go very far as a manager. You really have to make this shift into using that experience to be a great coach with it. That was my like first team. Uh, wow, this is what it means to be a manager. But I loved the outcome of that, of actually being able to teach some, being able to stay current myself, mm-hmm. but then really work to like get others to be, you know, the best programmer on the team. Uh, that was when probably the managerial bug caught me with it. Um, and I did, I went in and out of manager roles in that. I actually, when I switched to engineering in Red Hat, I went back to an individual contributor role on what is OpenShift um, now. Oh. And I found my way back into management again on that. So I've done this shift back and forth, but it was, it for me, it was always the balance of currency. Like, am I still relevant? Do I know these skills? Right. And being a manager, can I be a good coach with them instead of continuing to pursue the skills just directly on myself? Yeah. One thing you said there that really interests me that I've been thinking a lot about is how much learning you need to do as a developer, especially an independent contributor, because new technologies and frameworks and languages are coming around that you know your organization is trying to adopt or that are just interesting to you. Maybe this could help us get ahead or do something innovative we haven't done before. But it's hard to find the time to balance those two things. So when you put yourself more in that coaching role, as you said, that's a great time to do extra learning and to sort of do that in partnership with the folks you're working with because you don't have as much on you, you know, in terms of like, oh, I got to deliver this project or this feature on, you know, I got to fix this bug on deadline. That's very cool. In your current role, what are you focused on? Are there things uh, happening right now at Red Hat that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I think in my current role, I still love the connection, the core connection to what we do. You know, I love that Red Hat is, we're very technical company, we build platforms. And so I still get to keep that connectivity to the technical side, even though, um, you know, there's a lot of just culture focus, uh, business, you know, outcome focus. The exciting thing I think with Red Hat right now, though, is the Red Hat's generally known for making customers successful on premise with software on it, where they run their own software. The I think the customer challenge, we call it hybrid cloud, but customers are ending up, they're on premise. Um, They're almost all in some migration of utilizing public clouds or multiple public clouds. And then there is an astounding amount of innovation in what we would classify as the edge, like put a 5G tether between your public cloud or your data centers and your autonomous cars or phones or... Um, drones or any other devices there. And Red Hat, I think the opportunity for us we're excited about is Linux is at the core of all of those because of the hardware that you use. It might be big iron hardware in the data center, might be virtual hardware in the public clouds, and it might be embedded systems at the edge. But you know, our view is it's going to be open source because that's the innovation model that um, works, is sustainable, lets a whole planet of people contribute. And it's probably going to be Linux-based. And then you get into things like um, Kubernetes lets you take a lot of Linux instances and make them work as as units. Um, how do you manage them? But that that is squarely where Red Hat is in this point in time, is you know, we think it's an incredible market. You know, we often have like a participatory type view of 
you know, we're not the end solution usually because we are a platform company and I love getting to work and partner with other companies and co-create with customers. Uh, but it is an exciting time. I'm usually telling my children this, but like, you have no appreciation for how exciting <laughs> it is to be alive. You don't right understand now. the cloud. <laughs> yeah. Old man shouts about the cloud. Yeah. That's really cool. It's so exciting to see because in general, I very strongly believe that open source is going to eat software just as much as software has kind of eaten the world. Yeah. And so a company like Red Hat is kind of pioneering that direction and has been for so long because it's it's one of the big ones that people think of when you think of commercial open source software. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I do think the the model it's been a while now. You know, when we were talking about I started in the mid 90s with this and we're in 2022 and it it has only grown in scope. I think you know, companies have started to figure out patterns of how can they use it well, still contribute back to really make it sustainable. Um, and it's still mm. a bit of an art of like, how do you do that well where it benefits you as a company? But then you've also got to be comfortable of you've got to keep feeding that original system that made you successful as well. And um, I love that. It's probably what I love about Red Hat more than just any software company is not just building great software, or delivering great products, but it's in finding that art and balance where you feel like you're contributing to something bigger in the work mm. that you do every day. And it changes competition. It changes um, a lot of aspects. But uh, but I agree with you. I think it's the model that in the end, it's you know probably one of the best ways that software can be written for it. Um, right. And if you couple that with, a lot of crazy hardware changes going on right now as well. Yeah. That's that intersection that, you know, I think it'll be a fun 10 years to see what companies and people do with it because they have access to the technology. The access to the hardware is, um, it's wild to me compared to what you had in the early 2000s at your fingertips. So um, I think we'll see a lot of innovation with that uh, combination. Yeah. I think so many things it almost feels cyclical because it's technology that like kind of has existed for a while, but the access to it has increased tremendously. Yep. And so things that only big enterprises could do in like the early 2000s, now someone could do on their home computer. Yeah, no, I agree. I was uh, recently telling my daughter on this, which I don't think she appreciated totally uh, or much <laughs> at all, but just of the power that's in a a Raspberry Pi or an Arduino and what you can get on Adafruit and how you can you can put together almost anything that you can imagine where I was giving the, uh, you know, when I was young, uh, you had to purchase <laughs> 100,000 units of this sensor. Uh, right. But you're right, that access is probably the biggest thing that's changed and it changes prototyping, it changes that that cycle of taking something in your head and making it real, which is, uh, it's fun. I still spend a lot of time, um, as you might be able to tell on my own time to keep pursuing that learning path, to build the intuition for where I feel like users are going to go or the market, um, will go as well. So. That's very cool. Yeah. I recently got a 3d printer so I could, uh, save a little money on all the plastic toys my son demands and then breaks um, now I can rep wrap them what what are you noodling on in your spare time Matt so I 
I have, I would say, done a deep dive, but I think in reality, it is like touching the surface around AI and machine learning uh, for it. And I always love the practical, like, how can I make this work uh, for real? Mm. And we had a an old phone system that, you know, when you have to buzz somebody and we live in the city, it would do a shrill ring, but you couldn't hear it anywhere in the house. And so um, I built a little machine learning that learned that ring versus my kids screaming or anything else, and then would play it over <laughs> Sonos nicely through the whole house. Uh, and it's still, I get excited every time that pleasant bell goes uh, through the house. Uh, no one else in my right. family appreciates it. I'm like, that is an AI doorbell. The sound but, of a problem solved. Yeah. yeah but, it, but that was a neat journey of just like getting that hands-on experience for um, with machine learning. And um, getting a feeling for like the Python ecosystems around it and where where ARM worked and then didn't work for me with fast Fourier transforms. And just a lot of that, I uh, that's what I've been diving into recently, just to try to get a, you know, it's a key space for us as a company and try to get a feeling of what customers are going through, uh, the good and the bad uh, there too. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other thing that is so much more accessible now, which again is exciting and there's a lot to learn too. Yep, absolutely. So Matt, as you look ahead to the future, what are the things that Red Hat is doing uh, you know, for its employees and its developers to sort of figure out this new world we're in, remote, hybrid, like you said, often done maybe asynchronously and open source? How do you think developers you know, are most productive and most happy uh, in, in the workplace these days? It's tricky. Uh, luckily, I don't think anyone has this figured out. But what what I wouldn't have guessed coming into this, so Red Hat, we were pretty comfortable with remote anyway, because so much of our culture is just um, based on that contributor style, whether it's kernel patches mm-hmm. on a mailing list or GitHub, you don't need to be in person um, to do that. So we we dealt with COVID pretty well. Everybody was home. We operated fine. What I have noticed coming back, though, is the um, the younger, earlier career engineer specifically coming in, um, that mentoring experience of like, I don't want to ask everything on a Slack channel or an IRC in front of everyone. Um, I was just asked the other week, like, I want to turn my head and be able to ask a question from someone mm. that that knows. There is, I think, a hunger for us in those earlier career they network, they connect, they get together in person um, mm. that I didn't know if I would have expected that. And yet, you know, we do struggle a little. I think the um, the mid more comfortable with their career engineers, they're fine being home on it. And so a lot I've tried to reinforce is how do we find that balance of what we're accountable for individually? Like how much did I code? Versus what are we accountable for collectively? If I, I help train the next generation and the earlier associates coming in that I think a lot of us have benefited from. Uh, I have no idea how that ends up, but that has been the balance <laughs> we're trying to strike as things open a little back up, uh, you know, making offices work well for associates, making them purposeful but I think we're pretty early on that that journey. But it was fascinating. I didn't think that that isn't where I would have guessed the the challenge point or outcome to be for us. But um, 
but it's exciting. I think it's all workable. And I would say we are much, much better at doing hybrid these days than we were before. We had an in-person audience community and we had a remote population. We're infinitely better at bridging those two worlds, which I think will only be better from that. Now we just have to figure out how to close uh, close these gaps. Mm. Yeah. And I've definitely seen similarly, it's very 50-50 where some people, they're just like, especially people earlier in their careers, they said, the last two years of my university, I was all remote. I want to be in person. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then other people are just like, I kind of liked being remote and I want to stay that way. And it's a very interesting dynamic that I didn't even consider, but it's true because it, it changed so much of their early life experience and early career experience. Yeah. No, it, it really is a, you know, for me, I focus on the culture of the company a lot. I, I believe mm-hmm. in it's like goal number one is if we can be passionate about why we're here and what Red Hat means to the software industry and how we contribute to open source, we'll have the time and flexibility to find that new balance on it. So I, mm. I usually start with like, let's be passionate about the right things on it. Um, and then I wish I had more answers like, how do you make this work for Cassidy? To your point, that 50-50 split you know, it's, for me, it's sort of how do you find the 10% or so that might be able to bridge across the two where you're giving right. people that want to connect and be there like, I'm tired of being home. I want to be here. And they they want that. You know, I think for me, the the early career experience I had, which a lot of it was learning from others, watching them on the job, seeing what it took to be great at areas. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we do that? And also um, excel at doing remote, which is a core part of how open source was, was built as well. So, uh, yeah, um, to be determined on that, but I think we'll have a few, few years, uh, tune in, tune in that one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I like your sentiment, which is that if you get the core right and the mission, right, then you'll buy yourself the time to figure those things out and yeah. try a few different ways and iterate. So Matt, for all the developers who are listening, who, you know, know and love Red Hat, uh, and it's dedication to open source. They also know IBM. How is that working? The you know um, the partnership of the two. Yeah, you know I, I think with with IBM we're three years and change into this, and I think the core of the independence of Red Hat being able mm-hmm. to be a great partner with IBM, um, but also continue to partner and do our focus around an open source model has been key. The reason this I think works well for everyone on it is IBM arguably has a lot more reach across the planet than we do mm. on it. We are passionate about, we obviously like, we're going to bring open source into every enterprise on the planet with it. IBM is there in those planets or, or in those enterprises. Uh, but IBM is also comfortable with open source and committed to hybrid cloud with it. And so that mm. alignment and they will preference Red Hat. They understand our model. Um, they are I think doing one of the best demonstrations of what can be done with Red Hat platforms, but then giving Red Hat the independence to partner with competitors in cases on it. It's been a phenomenal alignment. I think a lot of that credit is to Arvin, who um, is the current CEO, but also helped drive the acquisition. But yeah, as a, um, I started my career at IBM and it's pretty cool to boomerang back in um, this long round, but uh <laughs> 
you know, at this seat in Red Hat and be really comfortable with um, how they appreciate and understand Red Hat's model. So um, I think it's worked really, really well. And I think it it's actually a great thing for our core passion of um, making enterprises successful with open source. Yeah. Yeah. I like your point about reach and also openness to working with competition really kind of shows the commitment there. As a new CTO myself, what advice do you have for someone who hasn't been in this level of a role before? I think for me, I focus a lot on how you can influence authentically, like how you want to show up and lead. How how do you want people to see your leadership style on it? And you know, I think if you get that that right for me of like that mix of empathy, you know what other people are doing, really have your leadership style honed in. Um, I've often heard, I, I talked to some uh, other CEOs coming into this role and their advice was, you have to do you at the end of the day. And so really being mm-hmm. dialed into your style and, and understanding you're gonna have to make a bunch of decisions and sort of set that course, especially in a CTO role, um, but I think for me, it's knowing how you want to influence people and and having it be really authentic. I think that brings the best combination versus trying to um, mimic what somebody else has uh, has done in the role. But that that's helped serve me well because you have to make uh, easy decisions and tough ones. But you know, if it's at if you're comfortable with the core, what you're doing, uh, that has helped me, uh, you know, really feel uh, conviction and passion about what I'm doing. All right, everybody, we want to say once again, thanks for listening. And we want to shout out uh, a member of the community who came on and helped spread some knowledge. The Inquisitive Badge awarded five hours ago to Wonton, who came on 30 separate days and asked a great question, maintaining a positive question record. So thanks for all your curiosity. I'm sure a lot of folks have learned from those questions and answers. I am Ben Popper. I'm the Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us with questions or suggestions. Podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like this episode or you like the show, go ahead and leave us a rating and a review. really helps. My name is Cassidy Williams. I am CTO at Contenda, and you can find me at Cassidy, C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O, on most things. And I'm Matt Hicks, uh, CEO of Red Hat. You can find me on Twitter at, at Matt Hicks J. And I just want to say thanks to the tons of creative minds building Stack Overflow, because I think for me, that's gone hand in hand of learning and open source for a long time. So I yeah. very much appreciate what you've done. and. Best of luck uh, in the years to come, too. Oh, happy we could help. I, I'm not going to shout out your user profile. I won't out you, but I'm glad if we could uh, help you solve a few things or debug here and there. All right, everybody. <laughs> Thanks for listening so much, and we will talk to you soon.